Intersectionism? Intersectionality. Intersectionality. I like ism as well. I always do confuse them. I'm not really sure why. But intersectionality and feminism in STEM, and I'm happy to introduce her. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So what should I call you, Professor Richardson, Sarah? You can call me Sarah. Okay, Sarah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So I wanted to ask you, like, how, where are you from, and um, what did you want to be when you were a kid? What was your dream so I grew up uh, in partly in Billings, Montana. Okay. And then in high school, my parents moved to the Washington D.C. area. Wow, that's a huge transition. It was a it was a very big transition. But I'm glad <laughs> to have both parts of me mm-hmm. um, as part of my background. And uh, when I was growing up, I think I wanted to be a scientist. I had a mm-hmm. grandfather who was a very prominent scientist. Um, and I remember wandering his lab and wow. you know, seeing the microscopes <laughs> and uh, seeing his office with the piles of scientific papers and having some vague, vague idea that this was very impressive and, I, mm. and, and that he you know, was someone I wanted to emulate. Um, but uh, as I grew, I also found that um, I had a facility for language, that I was interested in politics and history and philosophy, mm-hmm. um, and ultimately I think I was able to meld those by discovering the history and philosophy of science. Um, That's really cool. How did you discover it? Because I think often it's hard for people to, once they articulate what they want, to find out that there's actually a profession that does all of those things. And it feels like Christmas. <laughs> it does. It does. And and I think a lot of people tell the story of discovering it rather late. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they played around with this or that. And then exactly. in their senior year of college, they yeah. happened to take an elective. And it was sort of like that for me. I did end up majoring in philosophy. I was an undergrad. I did my undergrad at Columbia. Mm-hmm. And, um, and philosophy did ask fundamental questions about what science is, what a scientific theory is, mm-hmm. um, and about the structure of scientific reasoning that were quite compelling to me. But it wasn't until I ran into a women's studies classroom mm-hmm. where um, we were studying how scientific claims are implicated in power structures wow. uh, that I saw this explosive intersection between the two, thinking theoretically and histor- historically about mm-hmm. science and thinking about structures of power and ideology. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's very loaded. I'm just thinking about all the ways that you could, could make that. And so another question, especially because this is a podcast about women on PhDs or pursuing higher education, um, when did you think you wanted to do a PhD? Yeah. Um, I thought I wanted to go to law school because I wanted to create change in the world. Um, and I took a year off and I worked in politics. I worked on campaigns and elections. And okay. I talked to a lot of uh, women attorneys. Mm-hmm. And um, they were quite frank with me. Uh, only one woman was extremely happy in her position. Wow. And a lot of them said, you know, it's just, it's, it's a very sexist environment. It's very unrewarding. I regret getting a law degree. And I, that could have been just the sample that I, um, I talked to. But it seemed like they were pushing me to, to consider other options. And I learned, um, not knowing this uh, at all, that, I, that you can get a PhD and they'll pay you. Um, and yeah. it took a while for me to discover that. Some people just know that. Um, but I thought, you know, okay, so there's this option where I could go and continue to study these things that hooked me in my senior mm-hmm. year of college, and someone would pay me. Yeah. Um, you know, not a lot, but enough to get by. And, and better than not being better than paying <laughs> someone else to educate me. Right. And, um, and that I felt I, I wasn't done with those questions. I felt like I wanted to learn to write and express myself better. Mm-hmm. I thought I would get that from a humanities or social sciences PhD. And so I looked at programs that had faculty that were doing the sort of work that interested me, and they were mostly interdisciplinary programs, mm-hmm. because this work happens at the interstices, exactly. history, philosophy, and gender studies. 
Um, and so I, I miraculously ended up getting into one of these programs. I know we're not supposed to talk about luck, but to me it just feels like I was sort of lifted up by the mothership and got yeah. this opportunity to go to Stanford yes. um, and a, a fellowship that would cover my studies there um, and joined this very interesting PhD program called Modern Thought and Literature. Interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. one of a small number of interdisciplinary PhD programs. And um, as a like as an aside, people tell you, oh, don't do an interdisciplinary. I was going to ask you about that. Ask about that. Yeah, it's like it, you never, you'll never get a job. Mm -hmm. You have to be legible. You have to have this, that, and the other. But what doing an interdisciplinary PhD allowed me to do is get precisely the training I needed to be an expert in this particular area. Mm -hmm. Right. I was able to get the gender studies background get the history and philosophy of science, and also get serious training in human genetics, which mm. my main research is on the history of genetics. Yeah. Interesting. And, you know, so it would have taken me, had I done a PhD, say, three PhDs. Yeah, well, like, exactly, yeah. exactly. So I was able to leapfrog over a lot of those things and do really great work that I think helped me. And I'm really curious yeah. how that works because of STEM PhD, well, let's say on um, physics or biomedical engineering, I had the very same issue where I was doing research that was really interdisciplinary, but which program do I apply to? And then what does that mean if I'm really trying to think about faculty or jobs? Because even if I'm doing physics research and I could do that research and get a degree in biology, what chance do I have of going back to a physics department or some other department? And so it was like very interesting to figure out where I should do my research, and then which one would have the best choice for my department. Because in terms of funding, interdisciplinary is great. But I think in terms of hiring, sometimes they don't value, they don't always mirror each other. Until yes. you bring in the money, obviously, but sometimes you know to get over that hurdle is very interesting. So um, just for people who may be applying to grad school, how did you, what programs were you looking into when you were trying to apply and kind of figure out that how do I fit, which, how do I find a program that will work for the needs that I have? Right. Well, I applied to a wide range of programs. I sort of took the big sieve approach <laughs> um, and I applied to things in all three disciplines that interested me, gender studies, history, and philosophy. Okay saw where I got in, and then, <laughs> That's you know, visited, and um, so I, I cast a wide net, and then saw where I got in, and then I asked a lot of questions about where their graduates went, especially yeah. very recent graduates, because mm -hmm. the academic job market and yeah. terrain is just constantly changing. Um, so where did the last five years of graduates go? Do they have jobs that... I could sort of model myself after. Right. Um, and places with high placement records, with graduates doing exciting work, mm -hmm. uh, were those that I gravitated toward. And of course, I was interested in the level of funding yes. as well. I think that's important and should not be discounted. Absolutely. And it's really important that uh, students know that they should be pushing for excellent funding packages. Um, explicitly written in the letter. Yeah. <laughs> explicitly <laughs> written, not like you will be funded, because that means they don't know how they're funding you, and they can hold that against you later on. You, you could end up it. teaching all the whole way through graduate school. Exactly. And that's not the sort of funding that will allow you to be as yeah. productive as you could have been. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now. Um, so now you're in this... Um, it's the School of Social Sciences, Department of Social Sciences. So am actually, I getting this wrong? I am. My departments are the History of Science, okay, and Studies of Women, Gender, and Sexuality. Okay, it's totally okay. It makes no sense. But you're but a professor of. It, my title is Professor of the Social Sciences okay. because I'm in the Division of Social Sciences. But <laughs> all of this is to say, I'm an interdisciplinary scholar. Yes, and I have um, a joint appointment. Okay, um, which is. In the history of my field, feminist science studies, mm -hmm. uh, very common and has been um, an important institutional, structural way to create interdisciplinary scholarship, mm -hmm. um, especially with people, I, I am not one of these people, but many people in my field uh, come out of the sciences 
Um, they have a PhD in the sciences, mm-hmm. but they also do humanistic inquiries okay. into the history or philosophy or gender dimensions mm-hmm. of the sciences. And so being able to have one foot in one area and one in the yes. other is uh, critically important. So people say to me, isn't it exhausting and demanding to be in two different mm-hmm. departments? And I've never felt that way. For me, it's a perfect intellectual fit. I wouldn't have it any other way. Yes. I'm pleased to be and honored to be in both communities. Mm-hmm. And I sort of see it as my job to bridge them, to create connections, and also to create critical conversations, exactly. to create interventions yeah. in each of those fields. Yeah, we're going to get to that. But first, you should probably introduce what exactly is your research. Right. I know you did that question <laughs> right. a lot, so you're probably going to, you got the elevator pitch down. Okay. Um, I am a historian and philosopher of science, and I focus on the history of genetics in particular, Mm -hmm. and its relationship to questions of sex, gender, and reproduction. Okay. So I'm interested, for example, in the history of claims about sex differences between males and females, Mm -hmm. and this intersects with many fields of science, including neuroscience and psychology, as well as evolutionary biology and genetics. And I teach in this area mm-hmm. um, as well as uh, write. I've written about the history of the sex chromosomes, the X and Y chromosomes, in my book, Sex Itself, the Search okay. for Male and Female in the Human Genome. And I'm currently writing a book about the science of maternal effects, which is. Interesting. Yeah, it's the science of how um, a mother's physiology and experiences and behaviors during gestation mm-hmm. can imprint on the next generation. Oh, wow. Epigenetically, <laughs> yes. Interesting, yeah. <laughs> Changing um, the, the uh, hereditary endowment received by offspring, wow. which is quite challenging from the perspective of 20th century genetics, very focused on transmission of genetic traits from generation to generation mm-hmm. in a non-sexed way. So, Gosh, where do I start? And so one of the first things I'm thinking about is you were talking about the history of gender, trying to make gender assumptions or gene-based, genetic level um, assumptions about differences in sex. So are there differences? Oh, okay. So at the genetic level, um, it, it, let, me, let me back up. So <laughs> when people ask me this question, I start by saying uh, sex is a construct um, we uh, made up of multiple levels of biological factors mm-hmm. that is not reducible to any single one of those factors. It's uh, a complex construct made up of hormones, genes, tissue-specific behaviors, um, brain and behavior. Uh, and we um, study differences along multiple axes between the sexes. Um, So there are differences between the sexes, but um, it depends on the context, uh, how functionally significant those differences are. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, males and females have um, a sex chromosome difference. Males have an X and a Y chromosome in every cell, and females have an X and an X. But functionally, the second X chromosome in females is inactivated earlier in development. And um, the Y chromosome only has a few active genes on it, many of which are actually replicated on the X chromosome. So Hmm. this is to say that actually, functionally, males and females have very similar levels of gene expression for uh, the sex chromosomes. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are, uh, so there's a difference without a difference. Yes. Um, And I'm interested in the complexity of understanding sex differences in lived bodies, in embodied human beings interacting with the world and with gender norms. Yeah, and what is that, so what, what are some of the lived experiences that you're interested in? Sure, um, so today in the talk I talked about um, changes in male and female performance on cognitive tests and yes. math. Yes, very telling graph. <laughs> right. So these, and this has been shown across a number of areas that um, male and female performance on standardized text, tests mm-hmm. is the gap is closing, 
and in many areas females have caught up to males or even uh, are exceeding males in performance. Um, and what that shows is that things previously thought to be innate sex differences mm -hmm. are in fact uh, the artifact of time and place and mm. are also subject, are, are highly plastic. They're subject to um, changes in social and educational contexts yes. that can change those outcomes. Um, so these sorts of uh, findings give us a very simple way of disrupting ideas that there are fixed differences. Um, and it's that move that really interests me, yes. right? Um, making the move to question something thought of as innate and fixed. Um, so rather than biology determining the gendered outcomes we see in the world, we flip the script and we see that gender actually can be altering the way the biology expresses itself. Yeah, I, listening to what you're saying, I am reflecting that I have a sense of appreciation because um, frequently, uh, because of my identities as a, um, a black person and a woman and a, a southerner, because there's some ideas about how smart southerners can actually be, but um, just thinking about how one way I've tried to combat um, people, hey, you, you stole my spot, you don't deserve to be here because I've been educated in um, elite spaces, is to present data, right? And um, I've also had to confront data that would suggest that black people's brains are smaller and that's why they're more dumb or whatever, that's not well, not grammatically correct, or women have the look at this graph that shows that women are just supposed to do differently, and so to show data that actually sh demonstrates like actually you're full of crap, <laughs> you know, it's, it's really interesting. But at the same time, I'm curious how the research that you're doing obviously leads to a lot of conversation or potential for conversation. So there are ways that people can use the data to show there are differences, and that's why we should keep doing what we're doing. And there's data to show, like, actually, this is what's really happening. And I'm kind of curious how this intersection and that conversation evolves for you as you talk to scientists who are supposedly, supposedly very unbiased in their assumptions and things that they make. Yes. Um, so I'm just trying to I don't to know if that was a question or a comment. No, it really is. Um, I want to just speak, first of all, to the experience you've had of people of, of needing to correct people's assumptions mm -hmm. about in intellectual capability. Um, and that's profound. I mean, to yeah. be faced with claims like that. Even as a kid, right. you know, trying, it's hard not to internalize that. To, to be faced with that and then having to undertake the labor to explain, mm -hmm. to be the one explaining. <laughs> and answering those sorts of claims is exhausting. Yes. And it's, um, it's deeply, deeply troubling. Um, these claims are extremely persistent and Undoubtedly. we cannot deny the continuing influence of these ideas and their persistence despite what we see as very persuasive data mm -hmm. um, that would question their relevance to the vast mm -hmm. gaps we see in outcomes um, in, among uh, women and minorities in the sciences. Mm -hmm. um, so I am constantly thinking about how to teach, how to inform, how to strategically frame these ideas. Mm -hmm. And this morning, unfortunately, is a very short talk exactly. with a very short, the clear aim, which was to explain intersectionality. And I absolutely appreciated yeah. the way you encapsulated your story. I also appreciate professors um, and scholars who actually take a, the time to make a story that has a point that considers their audience and what needs to be said, rather than rambling. Anyway, that's another. Yeah, I mean, you, <laughs> you can only do so much, and, and having to, that can be dismaying sometimes too, yes, to yeah. realize that. Um, but uh, so, so you, the other thing that you brought up when you were speaking was just, just um, not just the exhaustion, but um, just how you. How political it is like mm -hmm. you know just to have to jump into that space um, and I do think you in and the question of objectivity so I do think this is why I find history and philosophy of science really powerful mm -hmm. um, because it places in a broad theoretical perspective 
uh, scientific claims that we hold to be true now. Mm -hmm. um, and it helps us trouble the idea or question the idea that uh, scientific findings at any particular point and, found, and, and time mm -hmm. are the same thing as truth. Um, Interesting. Right, so to, to show the contingency of scientific claims mm -hmm. on social structures, mm -hmm. um, on power structures, mm -hmm. the way in which scientific claims are implicated in and informed by ideology. And that sounds provocative, but it's absolutely the history of science in the area of sex and racial difference. Absolutely. So that's why, yes, data is valuable, but I think even deeper is telling that history and telling it in a really compelling way. Yes. Um, so that we see how the defenders of slavery used scientific claims mm -hmm. to construct a political argument yes. for the continuation of slavery and then beyond slavery for the continuation of structures such as segregated schools and housing mm -hmm. um, that stay with us today. So science is implicated. Science is not a realm separate from society um, or outside of ideology, mm -hmm. um, but is part of it. That doesn't mean that science is also not a special realm where we can uh, have rigorous, empirically informed conversations. Mm -hmm. um, we can put claims to rest, um, and that is the special part of it, uh, that when it's well-functioning, mm -hmm. um, we, we uh, should uh, preserve and value deeply. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it's the, the, the extent to which science is objective is contingent on how well-functioning it is. And part of that is the inclusion of diverse perspectives, the consideration of alternative theories, and so the ability to test, fully test, yes. our theories. And when that doesn't exist, when a majority view uncritically prevails, um, standard views will not be questioned, mm -hmm. right? Our background assumptions will be invisible to us. Um, yes. So that is, you know, in these realms of, of hot button, stick your finger in the socket kind of questions like intellectual differences yes. between classes of people, um, that's the kind of critique we need. We need our history, we need our philosophy of science, yes. um, and we need uh, rigorously collected and interpreted data. Mm -hmm. So I'm, this is all amazing, and I'm thinking about the, the area of research that you're in, these are kind of the foundational points, right? Like, let's analyze, let's um, let's walk in and thinking about the biases and the way that the structures are, and the things that we know may be founded in things that are not true. And I'm thinking about the space that I do research in where they don't have that as a foundation, so they're not thinking about this, and they may say, well, I'm studying neurons. Well, it's, that may be brain, so that can be psychological. I'm studying cancer cells. Mm -hmm cancer cells are unbiased, so the way that I do my research, shouldn't I shouldn't have to think about those things, but then there are ways in which if I'm presenting the data or if there's a certain person that's doing it, they, there are ways that these things can trickle in. I'm kind of curious, when you have conversations with other um, scientists who are not aware of the, the foundation that you set to actually establish these type of conversations, like the ground rules of the conversation, how do they go and how do you try to get them to try to understand these things which they are completely unaware of? Mm -hmm. And in some ways may be apprehensive about, may think, I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I understand the laws of, you know, like the scientific method. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what I like to do is encourage people to think about two things. Um, I think the easiest starting point mm -hmm. is to help scientists understand how their ideas are translated mm -hmm. in the broader world. Mm -hmm. um, so the easiest entry point is the communication of scientific ideas. Okay. And scientists can often understand how scientific ideas that are complex in the laboratory mm -hmm. go out into the world yeah. and <laughs> become distilled in ways that reinforce uh, ideologies mm -hmm. um, 
for simplistic ways of understanding human differences, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so once we get to that point, then I want to delicately suggest that those simplistic ways of understanding human differences can in turn influence scientific hypothesis form formulation, mm -hmm. the questions that we consider valuable, the um, data that we collect, how we describe that data, the language that we use. Right. Um, and this is particularly salient and true in the history of human biological difference research, mm -hmm. race, gender in particular, um, where there is a, a way in which our background beliefs and assumptions from society uncritically and invisibly influence the basic ontologies or categories of analysis mm -hmm. in those fields. And there are many, we now have many, many rich case studies of this from the history of science. Okay. Um, so for any particular field, I encourage scientists to think uh, openly and critically from the perspective of generating alternative hypotheses and mm -hmm. asking smart critical questions mm -hmm. about how that might be happening in their mm -hmm. field. Um, so, scientists often very easily grasp the idea that research can have bad implications. They don't often grasp as easily the idea that social assumptions can, the arrow can go backwards yes. and can influence science itself. Um, so I start the conversation with social implications mm -hmm. and then we move to foundational ideas about how we frame research yeah. questions. So in the sciences of difference, um, the focus itself on difference, mm -hmm. for example, rather than on uh, variation and mm. overlap, change over time, uh, developmental contexts, mm -hmm. right, um, is one profound way in which, so the reporting of findings always yes. as differences between groups um, rather than uh, looking at developmental yeah. time points is one, one critique we can make, one opening to those sorts of, of conversations. I like this, and I hope that people listening may think about this as ways to both um, think about how they go about making decisions or trying to have discussions with people in their department. I can see differences when the way someone communicates somehow will extrapolate to whether they're smart enough or that they can believe the data that they're saying because the way they talk is different, and so you have to code switch, and it's just like a whole bunch of interesting things that, that come up that I think I have trained myself to be aware of and to, when all possible, not do, but some people, it shouldn't have to be the case that that, that happens. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about intersectionality. It's a, I think it's a buzzword right now, yeah. and I'm curious if you can introduce intersectionality, and then also if you could tell me what you have found in your conversations the main misconceptions around it are. Yes, um, so intersectionality is a theoretical tool um, that comes from feminist theory, mm -hmm. and it is uh, naming um, the idea that gender alone, uh, gender never operates alone. Um, the gender operates within a complex web of intersecting social statuses. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it is common for, in, in the conversation that we're having at this conference, um, for us to use the phrase women in science. Mm -hmm. um, that is a phrase that produces invisibilities mm -hmm. um, and that fails to recognize that uh, a woman in science um, is actually positioned within this array of experiences, mm -hmm. backgrounds, and statuses, class, race, gender, ability, sexuality, and so on. Um, when we begin to appreciate that, um, there is no paradigm woman. Mm -hmm. um, and it changes the way that we approach the problem itself. Mm -hmm. Um, the way that we ask questions of the data. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it forces us to think about the relationship between feminism and power. Um, so what intersectionality is, is a way of intervening on the um, default position um, 
of a majority white woman as the subject of feminism, mm -hmm. right? Um, what it is not, and is often mistaken uh, as, yes. <laughs> is an affirmation of the importance of inclusion or of diversity. Mm -hmm. And that is important, of course, mm -hmm. uh, but that is not itself intersectionality. Just to include people of diverse backgrounds is not the same thing as acknowledging the interaction mm. between gender and other categories of analysis, right? So mm. it's an, an, an analytic, it's right. a tool for uh, diving into our social worlds and analyzing power and oppression, mm -hmm. right? Not just a signal that we should have diverse peoples right. in the room when we're having these conversations. Right. Although, of course, that is important. Mm -hmm. So that was the point I really wanted to emphasize today. It's, a, it's an analytic tool. Um, you don't say you've achieved intersectionality. Mm. You do inter intersectionality. Yeah. I like that. I like that. And I'm finding that the way I've experienced intersectionality, or I heard it on Twitter, actually, and I've really heard it when it comes to black women talking about feminism and making that distinction of white feminism, particularly with Hillary Clinton's campaign and just kind of trying to insert themselves into the conversation um, in a way that people will be receptive to, like, hey, intersection, we need to discuss how when we say these things, they are not including these women. And similarly with Black Lives Matter, where, hey, we're talking about black men being killed, but then we're also not mentioning how does this affect black women? What about the black women who are being killed? What about um, Asian or Latino people who are being killed? And I guess the thing I wanted to bring up is, is that um, I think these conversations are hard for people who are already in minoritized positions yeah. because they see themselves as the prime, the, the we is me. Mm -hmm. And so how am I discriminating against someone else or hurting someone else when I thought we were the I and me, right? So like adding structure to it is so important. So even not even when I'm talking with like, let's say a white male or someone, it's really like when you get into the subcategories and then people refuse or can't see, I'll, I'll give people a bit of a doubt, maybe they just haven't thought about it before, but how that category can actually be even further stratified and how there's still no space for these people. Yes, it's the all the men are black and all the women are white yes, yeah. sort of thing. Um, and then, uh, you know, falling into the seams between that mm -hmm. and having to wave your hand around. Yeah. Um, or like say, hey, I'm right. trans, I'm trans. Right, right. And, you know, I, I don't know if you caught this, um, and, but in one of the things I tried to do in the examples I gave today mm -hmm. is talk about white female experience yes. as intersectional. It is not that everyone else is intersectional Mm -hmm. and white women are just women. That yeah. would be profoundly to con contradict what our theory of intersectionality <laughs> exactly. says, right? Exactly. Um, for example, the data showing that um, while certain ethnic groups have uh, caught up in terms of math performance, mm -hmm. white women are actually behind white men. Yes. That's intriguing. It is. I mean, it's something. It, it shows that there's something interesting about the intersection between cultural experiences of whiteness and femininity. I mean, I hesitate to make those arguments because I don't want to continue to uh, over take so much space up for <laughs> white women's experiences because that's already the issue. And I can't right? tell you how much I appreciate that. <laughs> so it's true, but but as a teaching tool mm -hmm. to a room that is overwhelmingly white yes. to show that your experiences too are intersectional. Yes. Um, to help understand that uh, mm -hmm. tool um, was something I really wanted to yeah. do. Um, so uh, it, it, I think there's a, lo a long way to go um, in women in science discourse because it's so structured around this pipeline model mm -hmm. where the idea is producing scientific thinkers or workers for the nation mm -hmm. and it really homogenizes people's experiences or desires uh, and it's considered almost um, transgressive or hypercritical to start to blow apart the mm -hmm. category of the woman in science right when people have worked so hard mm -hmm. to even create Yes. a dialogue about the underrepresentation of women in mm -hmm. science. And 
uh, I wish it weren't received that way, mm -hmm. that to critique that category yeah. is not to destroy it, it's to make it even more fascinating, more yeah. inclusive, it's to help us get more strategic mm -hmm. in the way that we approach yeah. that question. Otherwise, all we'll do is replicate those structures of invisibility. Exactly. I have so many things I want to ask and add, but I want to switch topics and kind of get towards the closing and, and talk about you as a professor. And so, are you, you're an associate professor now, so I'm assuming you've just gone through the whole tenure process, or no, ah, you're in the process? I'm in the process. At Harvard, oh. associate is untenured. Well, okay, so, I did not know. I did go through a process to get to be associate, and it was uh, rigorous, and that was uh, amazing. Um, I'm very honored to be an associate professor. Currently, I'm under tenure okay. review, um, so I can speak as someone at that mm. stage of things. Yes, fingers um, crossed. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so part of what I wanted to ask you is, like, one, you know, what do you see your What's your goal as a faculty? Like, what kind of mission do you like to do in your research and your mentoring? Yes. Um, well, one of the things I talked about today is how important teaching and mentoring is to me. Mm -hmm. um, we are told, uh, women in academia, I think, are told, watch out, don't mentor and teach too much. Yeah. Don't do too much service. You have to do your research. Mm -hmm. That's true. You know, you have to keep perspective. Yes. And you have to get the research out. In the end, the only, your ticket in academia is your research. Yes. Um, so you have to keep the eye on the ball. But for me, in terms of sustaining a life mm -hmm. in the academy, what's been most meaningful to me are my relationships with my students. Mm -hmm. And acknowledging that and embracing that has yeah. been really important to me. In terms of Is that survival, you've always done, or you had to grow into that. I had to grow into it. And <laughs> first, when I came out of my PhD uh, and went right into the classroom, I, I had, I was given a huge lecture course. Mm -hmm. I had never taught. I got very little teaching experience. Yeah, research ones you're doing. Yeah, yeah. in my PhD program. So I'm thrown in there. I had no idea what I was doing. Of course, I had the best intentions, and exactly. I wanted it to be great. Mm -hmm. But boy, was that a, a really, really steep. There's a difference between wanting to be great and having the practice and like really Absolutely. appreciating the art of teaching. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and so I spent a lot of time learning. I read everything. I talked to everyone. I went to all the workshops. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I spent a lot of time grousing about teaching because mm -hmm. it was hard. It was draining. And this was as you started your faculty Absolutely. position. So I'm supposed to be publishing and I'm supposed to be learning this. This is the experience. Writing a um, book. <laughs> yeah. And so I fought against it. You know, I bang my fist against it, I was like, I don't want to do this, yeah. I, I hate it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but as time went on, um, it became my salvation. It was the space where uh, I felt I was most directly influencing people, being effective. Um, I felt that I was making real human connections mm -hmm. with students. I was learning from them. I yeah. started to set things up so that the classroom was the, a learning space, so that mm -hmm. I was teaching in ways that pushed my own research forward, and everything came together. Mm -hmm. And um, so, uh, you know, I know this isn't true for everyone, mm -hmm. but it, I finally gave myself permission to say, I love teaching, I love it, and I wanna put it at the center of what I do. Yeah. And one of the things I look forward to with tenure mm -hmm. is doing that even more. Yeah. Because while you're on the tenure track, you have to keep your eye always on the research. And it does mean that you have to restrict the amount of energy and time you can put into teaching. And now I really want to embrace that role. Yeah. You know, um, and I'm going to have the time to really innovate and take risks and give the full amount of attention and time I need to to my students. Um, and what are some of the ways in which you can or would attempt to introduce um, intersectionality. And so one of the things I'm thinking about is um, the position you have now to see students who are in minoritized positions and be able to think about the systemic ways, like the ways in which you can encourage them or keep them in the program or to let faculty know what you're doing might actually be counter, it's counterintuitive. And you're assuming that someone um, 
Yeah, I'm rambling now, but what are, are there any ways? ways? <laughs> well, I actually I'm still not that you have to, but I uh, well I I do. It's something I think about it from the moment of course construction mm -hmm. and in every class. Um, the the one thing I have learned is that you have to bring it in on day one. Mm. It has to be there. It has to be named and it has to be there. Students need to be able to recognize their experiences mm -hmm. in the class and from the first, in the first lecture. Mm -hmm. So I always make an appoint of that. Um, so it's not like there's going to be the day in which we discuss the experiences of underrepresented minorities, mm -hmm. right? Um, in fact, it's a through line of the class. It's a teaching point. It's an objective of the class mm -hmm. from the beginning. Um, and the other piece is building personal one-on-one -on -one relationships with students. So I do think that um, in my experience and also from what I've learned from the literature, that uh, when students feel invisible in the classroom mm -hmm. and like their presence there, they could be there or not, right? <laughs> um, then especially for underrepresented minorities, that's it just compounds the alienation. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, um, so I learn names, and I insist on students meeting with me one on one outside of class. Mm -hmm. And I am abundant with the time I have for them. I'm not trying to cut it off, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I try to just go that little extra mile um, to make sure that all of this, all students feel. Heard. Um, and not all students respond to that, and that has to be okay. Yes. Um, but I think that's, you know, understanding that teaching is a relationship. You're not on a screen at the front of the room, you're a human being yeah. interacting in real time. Um, yeah, there's so much. I appreciate this as I listen to more of my humanities friends. I am hopeful that I, as a professor, fingers crossed also, yes. can incorporate. <laughs> this type of, to bring more humanity into the STEM for classes, because I don't think it's impossible. No. And I think that people, again, assume that this is supposed to be hard, it's supposed to be unpleasant, it's supposed to be dry, and that's not necessarily how it, that is not how it has to be. That's how it was. That's how you learned, and yes, you did do just fine, but you could do better. So we'll see. So thank you so much, Professor Richardson, for joining Richardson for joining me. Um, this is an amazing conversation. Can I say one more thing about the teaching? Absolutely. Ninety percent of students who drop out of STEM fields mm -hmm. say that one of the major reasons why was the quality of teaching. Wow. Um, so anything that we can do to turn that around, um, to make the experience more satisfying mm -hmm. as a human experience, yes. right? Um, more like what students say about their humanities classes, yeah. I think will improve those outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, so I do think, I do really commend your attention to teaching. I hope that you're able to find spaces yes. that encourage that and honor that. Smaller classes, Especially sizes, in terms of promotion. Teaching and innovation, taking risks that yeah. can fail fabulously. <laughs> but okay, I'll yeah. let you finish. <laughs> no, no, no. I agree, I agree with everything you're saying. Snaps yeah. everywhere. Snaps. This is great. But I, I very much respect the fact that you enjoy teaching and have found a way to incorporate teaching into your profession, especially at, an art, at any research one institution. You know, it's really hard to try to teach and be valued as a scholar at the same time. Um, I've even been told when making your faculty package that you shouldn't, there's actually a middle ground you're aiming for where you don't want to be so low that you're like, do you even know the subject? But you don't want to be so high that it sounds like, wow, you just want to be a great teacher because that'll, that'll then imply that you don't want to be a scientist. And I've actually heard this from people on the committees that are actually selecting. You know, this is the advice they're telling you. And it's just really interesting. I think it's real. And we keep self-perpetuating yeah. people who just know how to learn from horrible people and think that's okay. Yeah. I, I'll never forget, I, I sat in on classes, um, I did research at Caltech when I was doing my PhD mm -hmm. and my husband was wor working there, so I sat in on some classes mm -hmm. in genetics, I was always trying to learn, 
And the, the day I walked into a class at Caltech and the professor was standing at the front of the room reading out of the textbook. The entire class My was you know, playing Scrabble on their computers. Mm -hmm. And it was as if no human interaction had mm -hmm. happened in that space. Yeah. And you know, maybe it didn't matter for these students. Maybe they he wrote so the textbook and he they felt like, sure. That's what I was anyway. It was, it was an astounding, mm -hmm. almost criminal and offensive act as mm -hmm. a teacher. I felt disrespected as a student. I, I can't right. imagine. Um, and, and to think that this is things like that are happening in science mm -hmm. classrooms. And people internalize that and they, the whole genius complex. Well, I don't need to learn. I don't need this. I'm smart. I'll do it anyway. It's like, I, you know, you're competing with something that, you know, this can actually be a fun experience. This doesn't have to be something where you're pretending like you're not offended by something or, you right. know, you, it's okay to say you don't understand something because that's how you get to understand. Right. Yeah. I used to, um, I was a TA trainer. I would train the new TAs in engineering coming in, and part of that was to have a micro-teaching session where we had a group of five to seven people. They give a five-minute talk, it's video recorded, and we re-watch them, and I give them tips. And what would frequently happen would be people would say, well, I'm doing semiconductor, blah, 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 or quantum mechanics, or like abstract math. Um, this is too complicated to try to explain in five minutes. And then first I accepted that, but again, I, I think I've done with this with over a thousand students at, the, at this point, and I realized, no, you would do the same thing in 40, right? And you would have the same excuse if you had 40 minutes, if you had a whole semester. The problem isn't the time. The problem is that you aren't actually trying to conceptualize how to put your message into the time frame to target the audience. So it doesn't matter that this is in the classroom, that there's like a computer science engineer and the mechanical and the biomedical. They're both, they're all competent. The point is that you didn't try to actually get your message across. And then it became more, less about, um, hey, have better board work, and more about, um, this is your, pre I want you to make you aware of your presentation style. This might be distracting. Mm -hmm. I want to call out that the way you said this um, is genderized, and having been in a physics classroom before, I know that when you say these things, it responds in this way. Like pointing out to people that care about your presentation, care about how you're giving things. Information's wrecked. There was even one guy that I remember very well who was um, very, very smart, like just really, really smart. And he has his way of being, talking very competently in a way that people don't interrupt him. And I actually, I've worked with him. He's in, he was in my cohort, so I understood this about him already. It wasn't just the five minutes on the board. And then I thought, what do I say to the guy who actually obviously got everything pristinely right on the board? Great handwriting, great all this stuff. And I, and I said to him, you're a very smart guy. We already know this. One day you're going to be in a room full of people who are going to listen to you. So I want you to focus on how to be human. I want you to focus on enunciation. I want you to think about how to deliver your message in a way that's meaningful and impactful. Right? Like, I, I don't know. I, what can I tell you? You already know you're smart. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> Let's talk about how you come off. Let's talk about how you might be president of something one day or someone's doctor. Right. But anyway, those are the kind of things that I think about. And I'm also well aware that that is not valued mm -hmm. in terms of hiring. Mm -hmm. After the fact, yes, not during. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was a ramble. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's um, I think it goes back to sort of what we've been talking about, which is, and being embodied, being in your body, mm -hmm. and being emotionally present and yeah. att attuned to social cues, and, and all of these things that are hard to hard to do or taxing to do, mm -hmm. um, but are so important. Um, and you know, uh, I think Maya Angelou says people will never forget the way you make them feel. Never. And you know, that emotional level, that embodied interaction mm -hmm. um, that you have with a student will stay with them. And it's so, you'll, you're, the teaching that you will do in your lifetime as a scholar will most likely be more important as what you leave behind you than the scholarship you do. I don't mean to say, I, I think that- It's you, true. I, you know, <laughs> we're supposed to say the scholarship is the thing, but really you're going to interact with probably tens of thousands of students, of mm -hmm. human beings. And what are you gonna do in that space that you have to interact with right. them and, and be with them? Mm -hmm. um, and 
so teaching is about modeling, it's about being present, it's everything. It's so amazing. And if you can incorporate the history, I need you to understand why these physical principles happen. I need you to understand that the coursework we're doing is research mm -hmm. that has already been so well characterized that now we're like, we're good. Right. Um, but you have to think about them in this way, so I wanted a timer, so to yeah. respect time. Thank you. <laughs> but it's really important to remember that they didn't know this at a certain point, and they did the scientific method. Because I've also found, um, particularly with my um, black or women friends, um, black and or white women as well, that when the classroom sucked, what kept them going was their research, because that was a place where they could, and I'll speak for myself personally, I would go to conferences, biophysical society as a sophomore, no reason. I mean, I, I had a poster, but I walked around to the other posters, and I remember, no matter how shitty I felt in class, being able to go to someone's poster and go, oh, this potential that a cell has, the same potential that crop vehicles I are, you're using this simple equation, oh, um, absorption coefficients, you use that to describe how, like, light travels through something, and, like, the concentration, and how that, what that means for the tissue, and understanding the